So I warned you I was going to talk about the rummage sale for the sermon. I'm, I'm going to guess by now maybe you're sick and tired of hearing about it. And, and I don't know how this hits you because I work at both locations. But when something's going on at the other location, how much does that interest you? That said, I would certainly encourage if you have the time or opportunity to help do so. Because the rummage sale, this annual rummage sale that we do up in Cottage Grove is kind of like the plant sale down here. Um, it's a lot of work uh, and all the volunteers that we can get to help out really uh, make the work go quicker and easier. And sometimes even I kind of wonder, well, is this all worth it? But then I stop to think, you know, it is. It helps us to uh, create our presence in the community, let uh, people know we're here for them. Uh, the proceeds also go for good causes. Um, we split it on the rummage sale, goes for missions and for Christian education. So in many ways, it's, it's very good. Um, but there's also an aspect of it that I find challenging. And, and quite honestly, I, I just... I'm at a loss. There are times I'll be sitting in my office and people will be out getting things organized and sorted and they have to price it for the rummage sale and they'll walk in with something and go, hey, pastor, how much would you pay for this? And I look at them like, I don't know. I t how much is something like that worth? That, I think, is probably the most difficult part of all this. I know some of you volunteer twice as nice. Uh, I, I would suspect that maybe you have the same challenge. Somebody drops off something and, you know, if you bought it in the store, it'd be hundreds of dollars, but who's going to pay that at a, a second hand? shop. If we struggle that much to put a value on the stuff of our life, then the obvious question is how much is a human life worth? Of course, we know to God all life is precious. In fact, in his word, he says, I don't want you to end human life. That's not your prerogative. That's not your right. Only God has the right to do that or his qualified representatives who serve him. In fact, God would have us protect life at every opportunity. Now, when we sat down to create this sermon series of Lessons from the Lesser Known, I had no idea it would coincide so beautifully with what's going on in our, both our political and social climate right now. Even though the Roe v. Wade has been overturned, still there's all kinds of barking about it and questioning about it. And rights have been taken away from people. It's sometimes people just don't want to sit down and have a civil conversation and work things through. Because not only is there the scriptural mandate that we protect life, and that includes the life of the unborn, but there's just some very simple, common-sense things that if people were clear-minded, fair-minded, this wouldn't be the big debate that it is. All right, so there's been a lot of talk about this recently. People debating whether or not this is a person, a valuable life, a human being to be protected, or something that's more easily disposable. So let's simplify this conversation a bit by considering the SLED test, a four-part discussion that confirms the value of all life. I've heard a lot of people say, how can something so small be a person? Well, I'm just curious, why can't something so small be a person? Let's think about it this way. We have three different people here, all different sizes, all different ages. Is the smallest person less valuable than the bigger person just because she's smaller? So what makes this any different? If size has nothing to do with the value of a human being, how can we say that life inside of a womb is of less value simply because it's smaller? Surely the fact that the unborn is less developed than the rest of us means something, right? I've heard this question a lot. How can something that's not even fully developed yet be a person? Imagine if your development or abilities determined your value as a person. 
We'll take this duo for example. One of them, well, he's practically Einstein, and the other, well, she's getting there. But just because she's not as developed as he is yet, does that make her less of a person? So what makes this any different? If our level of development doesn't make or break our value as human beings, how can we say that a life inside of the womb is of less value, simply because it's not developed fully yet? Then there's the argument about this. I've heard a lot of people ask, is the unborn really a person, if it's not in the world yet? First, let's start by saying, they are in the world, just in a different location. Let's think about ourselves. Our environments are always changing, but as we know, our parenthood always remains the same. So let me ask, if the value of a personhood is determined by one's environment, does that mean our value changes when we move from place to place? So what makes this any different? If our environment has nothing to do with our value as human beings, how can we say that the life inside the womb is not a person just because its environment looks different than ours? Additionally, personhood is not defined by this. I've heard a lot of people say unborn is totally dependent on its mother, so how can it be a person? I just gotta ask, why can't it be a person? Let's take this little guy for example. He's 21 months old and he can do some things on his own. Play with toys and run around, but there's still a lot he needs help with. You know, like general hygiene, putting on clothes and eating. But just because he still depends on his mom for all of that stuff doesn't make him any less of a human, does it? So what makes this any different? If personhood is not determined by our degree of dependency, how can we say that a life inside the womb is not a person just because it depends on its mother for survival? Seems pretty clear when we look at all these arguments, whether it's size, level of development, environment, or degree of dependency, that none of them define our personhood or our value as human beings. I don't know if you find yourself in conversations with your friends or neighbors about this issue or not, but it, it's still important. It, it's part of our prayer life that God would help us to protect the unborn. It, it's part of our voting, who, which candidate we feel better represents uh, our values. So it is a very practical and necessary part of our study today, but it's not directly applied in the sense that we're not talking about the value of the unborn. We're talking about the value of the recently born or just born, and that's where we find this lesson of these lesser-known women, Shifra and Pua. Normally at this point I would take you into the text and we'd begin our study, but I think it's a little bit better if we actually flip things, and let's talk about some of the details and the context before we actually take a look at the text itself. And part of the reason why I think that's important is because that when people do talk about this section of Scripture, a lot of times there's confusion or misunderstanding. So the Old Testament lesson gave us the basic outline, but there are some very uh, important details to understand that help us get in the mind of both Pharaoh and then in the minds of these two women who defied him. 
First of all, the Old uh, Testament lesson talked about this new king uh, and how he had forgotten basically what Joseph had done uh, generations before for the Egyptian people. Well, with a little bit of study and lining this lesson up with what history records for us, this new king, it's a very important phrase that we have in the Old Testament lesson because previous to this time, there were actually some foreigners, foreign pharaohs, who ruled over the Egyptians. For three dynasties, uh, 15th through the 17th, uh, they were known as the Hyksos. And eventually what happened about the time that Moses was born, the ethnic Egyptians finally uh, got the wherewithal to drive these foreigners out of their land. And so we have this new king. There's a dynasty shift. And I've just simply outlined for you uh, the best estimates of who the Egyptian pharaohs were through the lifetime of Moses. Not only do we have a difference in the ethnicity of those who are ruling over the Israelites, but now all of a sudden we have a point in history where things kind of converge and we recognize why this king shows his dark side in such a dramatic fashion. One of the other things that it's important for us to understand is, is that this new king is so paranoid about foreigners in his land, that would include the Israelites who lived in the land of Goshen, that he comes up with this diabolical scheme of enslaving them and forcing them into this uh, laborious existence. And so he basically puts taskmasters over them who drives them to do this job, these tasks that they're given to them, and that's basically what consumed their daily lives. There's confusion though, over exactly what it was that they were forced to do. A lot of people assume it was the pyramids that they were building, but that doesn't really work out. Uh, it's both wrong in the timing as well as the location, because the pyramids were actually built about a thousand years before this lesson takes place, and I've put a map up there. Uh, the pyramids are basically on the other side of the Nile, and the Egyptian, I'm sorry, the Israelites lived in Goshen, and you can see the two cities that they were compelled to build. And it describes it in a very generic way. Pithom was a city that needed to be constructed. Ramses actually pre-existed to this lesson, and so what it was was an enlargement campaign. In, in some ways, we might, from a worldly, say, uh, worldly perspective, say that this Pharaoh was kind of smart. He actually uses the Israelites to enrich the land of Egypt. But at, on the other hand, what he was doing was trying to actually suppress the growth of this nation because he did have concerns that much like the Hyksos they might dominate and eventually rule over them. So this labor basically was meant to exhaust the men of the Israelites and you know how that is you work so hard all day by the time you get home all you want to do is, is, is just go to bed and sleep maybe even skip your meal. He was hoping that these men would be so tired that that's what they would do and they wouldn't even have any time or energy for intimacy with their wives. And yet what we find, it's this beautiful thing that God often uh, shows us in Scripture that he is truly in control. Because the more that humans try to work against God, the harder God pushes back. Not only did God give the strength to these men to do the labor throughout the day, but it was at this time period in the history of Israel that the nation just booms. It, it just goes opposite of human logic. And this uh, uh, plan of God's actually is what brings us to meeting these two women, Shifra and Pua. I'm going to show you the, the text video in just a moment, but there's one more thing, one more clarification that needs to be made. And part of the reason why I wanted to do this ahead of time is because the video itself, and it's basically the only one I could find uh, for this lesson, but it also implies a misunderstanding. The uh, phrase uh, that I have up there, uh, the Hebrew phrase, the main word that I want to point to is this hey, ebri ot, 
which basically is a descriptive word. The question oftentimes is, were these two midwives of Egyptian origin? or was their ethnicity Hebrew? And the video kind of leaves it as an open-ended question. But the words of our Old Testament lesson do not. Uh, what this word is, it's known as a gentilic absolute, which means absolutely nothing to you. I give you that grammar for no other reason than I want you to understand that I'm not making a determination. But the words itself tell us that these two women were of Hebrew ethnicity. That's exactly what this word does. It describes the ethnic origins of a people or a nation. And if that's not enough to convince us, these names, Shifra, Pua, are not Egyptian. They're Hebrew by their ethnicity. Oh, the reason I point this out, and the reason why I spent time talking about the paranoia of this new king about foreigners, was you need to understand the dynamics of this lesson. Here we have two women who are willing to risk their lives for little baby boys. They're willing to defy the most powerful man in the land and it's not because they were Egyptians like he was and felt like they had the wherewithal to do that. They were actually some of the foreigners that this uh, Egyptian pharaoh detested and hated. And it's in this context then that we have this lesson, this lesser known lesson of life and death. When we first see them at the beginning of the Exodus story, they're introduced as humble midwives. This can mean the Israelite midwives or the midwives of the Israelites, which is a very important difference. They help mothers deliver babies, and they're important here because Paro's murderous plan to kill the Israelite baby boys involves midwives. He tells them, here's what you have to do. When an Israelite woman is giving birth, check to see if it's a boy or a girl. If it's a boy, kill it. Tell her that the baby was born dead. If it's a girl, let it live. Initially, we have every reason to think the midwives will go ahead with this plan. Paro has the power to kill people. He's able to afflict an entire nation. It would take a lot of courage to stand up to Paro, but that's exactly what Shifra and Pua do. The Torah tells us that they feared God, and because of that, they let the babies live. When Paro confronts them, they bravely lie, telling him that by the time they get to the Israelite women, they've already given birth and haven't had the opportunity to carry out the orders. Paro is forced to move to his next plan, to throw the baby boys into the Nile. But who knows how many babies Shifra and Pua managed to save in the meantime. Okay, that's basically what we're studying. It, it's a little snapshot in the history of the nation of Israel. And what I'd like to do is also kind of out of the norm. Normally, what I, I, I want you to just kind of glean the lesson as we're going through it. And so at the end, we'll talk about the lesson from the lesser known. I, I'm going to start with that simply because there's a lot of side lessons to this. Uh, protecting those who cannot protect themselves. Uh, sometimes defying those in authority who are directly going against the will of God. But if I could just wrap them all up in one. It's basically God honors us when we take a stand for what is right. And that seems very generic until we understand that only God has the ability to determine for us what is right. Human thinking is twisted and sick because of what sin has done to the human mind. And the only way that it can be sanctified, the only way it can be rescued is through the grace of God and the gift of faith. Faith that was possessed by these two women. Let me give you some insight into just how sick and twisted the human mind is because our first lesson basically gives us some insight into the cowardice of Pharaoh. Now remember, he is the most powerful man in this land. He could have easily issued an order to his army saying, go from house to house, be there as these babies are delivered, and as soon as you find a male Hebrew baby, just kill it. 
but he doesn't. He's too much of a coward, and he might, if you will, reckon that there would be some revolt amongst the Hebrews, except that they were under this harsh labor, and any pushback was met with either severe punishment or, or with death. I'm not sure what exactly was he was fearful of, but he tries to get these two midwives to participate into his evil plan. This word oben basically puts us in the birthing process. Literally, it means two stools or two stones, and it's talking about the birthing stool and then the stool upon which the midwife would sit. And Pharaoh says, while you're in this process of helping these babies be born, that's when I want you to determine the gender of the child, and if it's a girl, it lives, and if it's a boy kill it. And that's what the word says. And it doesn't exactly explain how he wanted them to kill each of the baby boys, but the tense would seem to signify it could be something as simple as as soon as that male baby is born, all they had to do was press down on the windpipe of that child and then turn to the mother and say, well, your baby was born dead. Of course, after, what, 10, 20, 100, 1,000 babies, that story's going to wear thin. So you can see the Pharaoh wasn't thinking things through. But it would have put the midwives in, uh, as targets of the anger of the Hebrews instead of him. There's something also that's quite interesting is the two midwives were willing to defy Pharaoh's order. They saw what was happening to their people. They saw the slavery that these men were enduring and how that was bringing hardship home to them and to their families. And yet they were willing to stand in defiance of Pharaoh. And the lesson tells us why. We've run across this Hebrew verb before, actually several times. Yara, they feared God. Doesn't mean they were afraid of God. It means they stood in awe of God. And when within this term Yara, there is this element. Most basically, it talks about a, a relationship of trust. And the only way in which we can understand it is because we enjoy an unequal relationship with God. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. God treasures us as his own. It's not like we're a lower class citizen to God. It's talking about the relationship of our nature versus God's nature. Simply put, Yara kind of indicates that we are tiny, in many ways insignificant. When you put us up against this world or the powers of this world, and yet God is big. God is huge. There is nothing that is bigger than God. And so I, I don't want to say it's an easy thing, but it is a natural thing for God's children to trust our big God. We're weak. There's so many things that are out of our control. And think about that even in our day-to-day -day lives. There are laws being passed. There are, there are certain things that, uh, as citizens of this country, that we're compelled to do that we have no power to stop. And yet, Yara reminds us that God is bigger than all of that. And so rather than fret about what happens in our daily lives, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be proactive about our country, its culture, and its politics, what I'm suggesting is the first place we start with that is by putting our faith in God rather than in human beings. And ultimately, when it comes to evil and facing evil and standing up to evil and doing what is right, we do not have the ability or the strength, and Yara tells us that, but God does. There is nothing so evil that it can overpower God. There is nothing so devious and defiant that it can undermine God's will. This is the perfect lesson of that because every time Pharaoh came up with a way to manhandle the people of God, God countered that, sometimes with a miracle and sometimes with people who were just courageous enough to do the right thing because it was the godly thing. That's what Yara talks about. These women respected and were awe, in awe of God rather than afraid of Pharaoh. 
And then the final verse of our lesson has an interesting translation. Let me just put it like that. It's almost like Pharaoh's confused. He calls him in. Hey, explain what's going on. This term summoned is, is too weak. Basically, he, he brings them in because he's angry, and he verbally abuses them. I, I'm surprised that as you read through the story, the next verse doesn't say, and he has them executed. And for some reason, he doesn't. And the only reason that can be is because of God's will intervening protecting these two women because God honors them for doing what is right, for doing the godly thing, for caring more about the lives of these Hebrew baby boys than caring about their own lives. It's a beautiful lesson. It's a lesson that's not learned well enough in our lives today, and it's a lesson for which God leaves us on planet Earth to live out on a day-to-day basis because let's be honest, it's the same lesson we keep hearing over and over again in all of these lesser-known lessons of the Bible. Every day we have a choice. Every moment of our lives we have this choice. Do I do the right thing or do I do the wrong thing? And we have a godly nature which wants to serve God and we have this sinful nature which wants to serve our own sinful human interests. It is a tug of war going on in our hearts but it is multiplied when it comes down to matters of life or death. And God forbid it comes down to matters of where we have to choose our own lives maybe over the lives of somebody we love. I don't think we can appreciate that enough sitting here gathered together in a nice safe place on a Sunday morning. So maybe this will help us learn that lesson. I once heard a story of a drawbridge operator who decided one day to take his son to work. The bridge, which supported train rails, was heavy and often kept in the up position, for it was quicker to lower than to raise. The operator heard the whistle and rumble of train coming towards the bridge and reached for the lever that would lower the span. At that moment, his eyes diverted to find his son. To his horror, he watched as the ball his son was playing with bounced into view and then rolled down beneath the ballast of the bridge. The son quickly followed. Both ball and boy disappeared into the heavy gears that controlled the lowering of the bridge. He yelled as loud as he could, but there was no response. The train continued to forge ahead. He had no time to leave his post, rescue his son, and return to lower the bridge. If he did not begin to lower the bridge in the next few seconds, hundreds of people would lose their lives. He had but those same few seconds to make a decision. Surrender the life of his son for the lives of many, or allow the innocent to perish. With tears streaming down his face, and the roar of the approaching train, drowning out his screams, he threw the lever forward, lowering the bridge. He watched the train as it passed and saw the people through the windows, reading, laughing, talking, staring, oblivious of the sacrifice that was just made for them. that in there simply because it really presents us with a dilemma. 
if I had to make the choice between losing my own life for the sake of somebody else, I think I'd be much more comfortable making that decision than if I had to choose losing the life of somebody I love very much in order to save somebody else. And yet this lesson is a reminder of that's exactly what God did for us. The father first chose and then asked the son, will you die for all this creation, even though they don't deserve it? And the son said, I will. And he took on our human flesh and blood, came here and made this his home, stepped into our place and willingly sacrificed himself. It wasn't just the right thing to do, it was the godly thing to do. It was better that he thought he'd lose his own life so that we could be spared from an eternity, separated from God, spending it in hell and suffering forever. That's the kind of love that God has for us. And that's the kind of love that God would have us show others, especially those who are unable to defend their own lives. And God forbid that we should have to come to such moments in our lives to make those kind of decisions. But let's be honest. Let's be real. The closer we get to the end of this world, the more evil God promises it will become. There will be these challenging days ahead. And I don't know if it will happen in our lifetime or that of our children, but we may truly be called to account and in that moment have to choose. Do I live or do I die? And whether you have to ever face that problematic decision in your own lifetime or if it's just simply making the moral decision, do I serve God or do I serve myself, I pray to God he gives us the strength and the courage that he gave to these two women so that we can do the right thing, the godly thing, because it serves God and not man. There's just a few other things that are connected with this lesson that I think help us to understand the bigger picture and reinforce the fact that God does honor us when we actually do the godly thing. And that comes in those verses that follow after our lesson. And we are told about how the Pharaoh calls them in to give account the midwives for not killing the Hebrew babies. And the video said that they lied. And, and I guess in a way you could look at it that way. But the reality of it is, I would simply say they didn't tell the whole truth. Because what they offer as an excuse is a reality that Hebrew babies and Hebrew mothers deliver much differently than Egyptian mothers do. If you've ever heard of somebody uh, delivering a baby in a cab on the way to the hospital, then you understand the, the vigorous birth that some women are able to have. It goes very quickly. And of course, when I was a new uh, father-to-be, it was always, well, don't worry so much about the first one. Uh, they take forever. But I was still driving like a maniac on the way to the hospital because you just, you just don't know. Plus, on top of that, the area that these two midwives were covering was Goshen. It's a huge area. So I, I think it's a little too much to say they out-and-out -out lied to Pharaoh. I, would, I think I would prefer to use the word they deceived Pharaoh. And for some of us, that may go, well, wait a minute. We're not supposed to sin. And isn't every lie or every deception a sin? Truth of the matter is, it's not. And this lesson it teaches us that. We're talking about doing spiritual warfare. We're talking about being the soldiers of God fighting against evil. And sometimes we have to understand that in the full context of Scripture. And while I'm not telling any of you the way to make your way through life is to lie through your teeth, I am suggesting that we need to take a good hard look at the battles that we're fighting and consider what God might have us do to emulate uh, Sifra and Puah. Uh, first of all, they teach us this simple lesson that whenever we choose to compromise and do things the way the world does, we're always going to be serving evil and not God. Uh, James tells us that. Don't be friends with the world. Don't start to think the way they think. Don't start to act the way they, they act. It will do you no good. 
But then there's also the passage, and that's why I mean the full context of Scripture, where Jesus tells us that in our ways of the world, we have to be shrewd as serpents. And I've heard that passage so misinterpreted. So I've given you what the literal meaning of shrewd is. Be discreet. Use wise ways. Skillfully take care of yourself. And I think this lesson is the perfect example of doing just that. You see, when he calls them in, they're half true in what they describe about the difference in birth and the challenges of uh, reaching every home in order to deliver that baby. But they also withhold part of the truth. They never confess to Pharaoh, we're doing this in defiance of your order, and we're doing it because we fear God more than you. And we might have an ethical dilemma with that. Shouldn't they have just come out, said the whole thing, and, and, and trusted God? Remember, God honored them. He blessed them for the way they handled this situation. Not only did he protect their lives, but ultimately he gave them families of their own. So the lesson indicates to us this was a God-pleasing way to conduct themselves. Let me try and explain it this way because I, I don't want there to be any confusion about this. I don't want us to start practicing what is, what is called situation ethics, where every situation has a different determination how I'm going to honor the Word of God. I'm not telling you that if your life ever comes under uh, great suppression by authorities that you make the easy choice, that you, you sin in order to get out of trouble. God doesn't honor that. That's not... God pleasing. What I am suggesting though is that as you do battle with the devil, sometimes you fight fire with fire. Remember the devil cannot read our minds or our hearts. Only God can do that. He's an angel, he's powerful, but he's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. And so sometimes as we do battle with the devil or any of his servants, that means we have to be a bit deceptive. We have to do the very things against them that they try to do against us. Not because in any way it might rescue us or make our lives a little bit easier, because it's going to frustrate the devil and his evil plans. The reality of the situation is we find this again and again throughout history where very such situations have taken place or may take place. During World War II, people would hide uh, Jewish neighbors and friends, and as the Nazis came door to door, they would not divulge the fact that they were hiding Jewish people. They weren't trying to dishonor God. They were actually trying to serve God by protecting the lives of others. While certainly they didn't share the whole truth, the deception did uh, end up sparing other people's lives. A similar situation today might be if some child is in a dangerous situation and they come to us for help and we hide them. And somebody might come to our house and go, are you hiding so-and-so? Have you seen so-and-so? We might not out and out lie to them, but we might withhold the full truth just so that we might protect them, knowing that their lives are very much in danger. And in essence, what we ultimately do is we put our own lives at risk for the sake of others. We had the perfect example of that in our epistle lesson, where the Sanhedrin told the disciples, you must not talk about this Jesus. And they went out, and that's all they did was to talk about Jesus. Sometimes, even as we stand in defiance of evil authorities, we will put our own lives at risk. And that's where we have the choice of life or death. Is our eternal life more important to us than our earthly lives? Is protecting somebody who cannot protect themselves more important than living maybe a few more days in this world? Again, I don't know if our world and society is ever going to get to that point where you are faced with that decision, but if you ever are, or if moments are similar to that, God uses them to simply remind us of the sacrifice he was willing to make for us. Not just risk a life, but give a life so that we could be rescued. 
This has been an, an intriguing lesson, and I, I don't know how much you knew about these two women, but they are beautiful examples of courage. Not just human courage, but spiritual courage, that they're willing to trust God more with their lives and their eternities than they feared Pharaoh. And so they made tough choices in difficult circumstances so that they might protect the lives of others. Whether or not this week you're going to face such an ethical decision of do I risk my own life for somebody else, know deep down inside that the devil will constantly try to put you in that position. I just simply pray that we're all prepared for that day, that moment in time where we have to make that choice between life and death. The lesson from the lesser known is make the godly choice. Because after all, you're so valuable to God, he chose you. My life is incredibly insignificant. I'm a tiny person on a small planet in a very large universe. My life is short. My money, education, and accomplishments are temporary. I can easily be replaced. My employer could find another person to do my job. Let's face it, even my cat can survive without me. But God can. See, I know this because he stepped down from his throne and made earth his home. Rejected and despised, he bore my selfishness, murders, and lies, carrying them to the grave, making me the receiver of divine grace. Now, now I see my worth through the eyes of the universe. There's something bigger at play here, bigger than men. Scripture claims that the created accused the creator, and the universe is merely a spectator. You and me? Our lives are center stage in this story. We are the drama. We the receivers of divine grace and the life-changing spirit. We who have been baptized by fire and water stand and live before men and angels. See, creation waits to see if in our testimony, the righteousness of God will be vindicated. So, I refuse to be ruled by materialism, by circumstance, or in search of the accolades of men. No self-seeking is allowed to dictate my actions. For I'm willing to be made a fool for Christ's sake, because I realize that I live on a stage set before men and angels. And my purpose is to glorify God. To glorify God. See, let me break it down for you. My life is meant to vindicate the character of the Creator before men and angels. My life is incredibly significant.